Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the pleasure of reading our scripture passage today. It's going to be Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. It's on the page, it's on page 871 in your pew Bibles, and will be on the screens as well. Would you read with me? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this rabbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to uh, our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth, all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Good morning. It's so good to be with you. And uh, it feels good in so many ways. Uh, It was two, two and a half years ago that we were right here in front of the church and you guys prayed over us and sent us out. Many of you I don't know, and uh, with the lights in my eyes, I can't see you anyway. But uh, it's so good to be with you again. Uh, our family's doing wonderful. It's hard to believe we've been gone for two and a half years. Some ways it feels so much longer. Other times it feels shorter. But we've seen God do some great things. Uh, we, oh, when we came out to, to Fremont, we did not have a building. God provided a building through COVID, which was uh, an incredible blessing. Um, so now we have a place in our neighborhood. God's ministering. Uh, and we've actually seen the church grow, and we're just so thankful for it. Uh, many people come up to me and it's like, oh, I'm so sorry you live in California. And I think, oh, how sad that you feel that way. 
We, we live in a place that is for sure filled with idols of all sorts. Our community, Fremont, is about 300,000 people in the Bay Area between Oakland and San Francisco and San Jose, like Ben said. Um, very wealthy community, 60% Asian. Uh, most people work at Facebook or Google or Tesla or, or Apple, the places that you've obviously heard of. Um, sometimes they have literal idols in their home, as a lot of them are Hindus or Buddhists or uh, Muslims don't have idols, but they have idols of the heart. But all of them have idols of their heart. And uh, it is a great place to be a minister of the gospel. And it's been exciting to see uh, God work in people's lives, people come to know Christ. We had a, a young lady, uh, Muslim background, come to Christ. And uh, that was a very interesting situation with her, all of her family. And we're just seeing God do some amazing things. And so it's great to be back with you. I want to dive into the Word and share God's Word with you this morning. And hopefully we can connect after the service, but it's a real privilege to be back in a place that I really feel at home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the work that you do in, in calling us to yourself. And whether we travel far away, ministering in places like the Bay Area of California, which are uniquely set against you, or whether we're right here in Pennsylvania, Lord, we recognize that there's the temptation of our idolatry. And yet, Lord, you draw near to us and you call the foreign to be your family and you make us sons and daughters of God. And so, Lord, equip us who know Jesus Christ, who've been redeemed by his blood, who've been made joint heirs in Christ. Equip us to share this good news with the world around us. We ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Have you ever been in a place where you felt very foreign? A place you feel like maybe you didn't belong. It's so good for me to be back in this place, a place that for years we were loved well and cared for and, and made to feel like family, even though we're not Pennsylvanians, and you can hear it in my voice when I say Wisconsin. Uh, but maybe you're here for the first time and you're thinking, I know what it feels like to not fit in. I know what it means to, to think, I don't belong here. And if that's the case, if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like, I don't belong, or I stand out or I feel foreign. We understand that that's an unsettling feeling. A couple years ago, I had an opportunity to visit a, a Hindu temple. Not something that I thought I would really want to do. Not something I want to do a lot of. But as I came into the Hindu temple, I recognized that everything about that place was, was unfamiliar. There were gods and goddesses that I maybe I had seen in pictures before, but never seen up close, and certainly not see, seeing people uh, pray to them and worship them. The whole temple was set up in a way that I was unfamiliar with. The chants and the customs and the, the gods and the goddesses that were being honored there, the smells of it all, the way people were moving and what they were saying, all felt completely unfamiliar to me. And even the things that I thought I knew how to do, like sit, I started questioning. Like, am my feet pointed in the right way? Am I communicating something? If I sit like this or if I do this, is it, is it wrong or is it right? What am I communicating here? Everyone's very friendly. They were all happy that we were there. They weren't making us feel weird or very accommodating. But I knew, I knew in my heart, I knew in my mind, my body felt it. I knew that I was out of place and I didn't belong there. And if we think back over your life, you can probably think of situations in which you felt outside outside or foreign maybe it's the first time you visit your in-laws family reunion and you the only person there is your spouse that you know or moving to a new school or starting a new job 
You feel out of place. You feel like you don't belong. You don't know what to do. You don't know the customs. And there's nothing good about that feeling. It's dehumanizing. Whether we agree with it or not, there's a reason that the government changed the designation from illegal alien to not undocumented or immigrant. Because that idea of being foreign or alienating is unsettling to us. So compare that to seeing your closest friends who you haven't seen in years and you walk into the room and immediately you know that you can be your truest self with those people. Or going back and seeing grandma's house and the smells that have been the same since you were a baby are are there again and maybe she's pulling cookies or bread out of the oven and you can remember that and you just feel accepted and loved and welcomed. Or coming back to your family after a long work trip and just laying down in your bed and saying, this is where I belong. We know those feelings. It's the opposite of feeling foreign. I remember when we came back from Asia after serving there as, as missionaries and, and all the things that were on my camera roll for that time period were all very familiar, very normal kinds of things like pictures of you know, the omelet that I ate at the, breakf- at the breakfast place I always went to, or the picture of the railroad tracks, or the picture of the town, things that I, I'd forgotten how normal they were. I missed them. Belonging is the opposite of foreign. And in Acts 17, we see Paul in a very foreign place. He's waiting, for, he's waiting there for Silas and Timothy to show up. They were in Berea and ministering, and Paul had to leave, and, and, and Sim, Timothy and Silas were finishing the ministry, and Paul's waiting. It's almost like he's just waiting around. Or maybe he took a little tourism trip to Athens. It's not the way Paul was, but we can imagine. And as he's there, we see in the text that he's distressed by what he's seeing. And I want to highlight for us this morning three missionary observations from this text and then hopefully a practical application for us to take into our workplaces tomorrow. The first application or observation we see here is the foreignness of the idolater's heart. Look at verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. We see this word that kind of jumps out to us right away, is that Paul was distressed. What was distressing to Paul? Well, what distressed me when I went into a temple was the idols and the idolatry. It was weird to me, and it, it, it freaked me out a little bit, to be honest. I don't think that's what Paul was distressed about here. Paul, remember, lived in a place that was full of idols. He'd been to Ephesus. He'd been to all these other cities in Macedonia and Greece and Asia. He was used to seeing idols. So what was distressing to him? He was distressed because of the lostness of the people. The idols point us to the fact that people's hearts were turned against God. They were far from God. Instead of serving the living and the true God, they were serving idols made of stone. It showed something about their hearts. And so what is Paul's response, you think, to this distressing feeling? Well, you've already read the text, so you know where we're going with it. But I know what I might be tempted to do, and I know what a lot of us as Christians are tempted to do. We're in a distressing place, we don't like what we're seeing, and we want to get back to a familiar place. But instead, we see Paul ministering. It says, both in the synagogue and the city, 
Paul found men and women whose hearts were bent against God. And the word picture here we see is, is stark as Paul's wandering the city of Athens. And we see the contrast here. So what does Paul do with this distressed feeling? He engages. Three times in, in this section of Scripture, we see the words talking about Paul. So he did this, or so he went there, and so he did these things. Three times we see this pronoun, so. Sometimes it's translated, therefore, but same meaning. This happened, so Paul did this. And then think in this word, we see some of Paul's intention and strategy. When Paul was distressed, he observed what was going on, and then he did something about it. Paul intentionally engages people where they are. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Noticing the phrasing here that they use, foreign divinities. And in this they were saying much more than I think they understood. Because the true and the living God revealed in the person of the resurrected Christ was indeed foreign to them. And that put them in a very bad situation. So what happens next? It says they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what's going on here? Here we see these philosophers, these Epicureans and Stoics, these two classes of philosophers, two sects basically of philosophers, kind of pitted against each other. They spend all their time debating and arguing, how do we live our best life? What does it mean to live the good life? What is the purpose of, uh, of mankind? Some of the same questions that we're wrestling with today, they would spend all their time arguing and wrestling with. And this is a place that, that Athenians had done this for hundreds of years. We may not know some of these characters, but we do know others that showed up on Mars Hill or, or the Areopagus here. Some of you are familiar with the name Socrates, right? Probably everyone is familiar with Socrates, and about 300 years, or 350 years before Paul stood on the Areopagus, that is a place that Socrates stood. We're going to talk about that just in a, in a second. You notice here they talk about Paul being a preacher of a foreign god. So the place that preachers of foreign gods were taken to be judged was the Areopagus. This was the place where Socrates had been put on trial 350 years earlier because he was accused of preaching about foreign divinities. I don't know if Luke was trying to make a connection there or if it just happens to be this is what happened a lot in this time period. But 350 years ago, Socrates was put on trial for preaching foreign divinities and preaching against the gods of Athens, and Socrates was sentenced to death. Well, that is not what's happening here in Paul's time. By this time in Athens, they had kind of moved past that. Foreign teachers were not put to death. But there was a trial of sorts. The gospel of Paul being preached of Jesus Christ was being put on trial. The idea was being examined. This was not a place of legal trial, but of cultural trial. And so then we see Paul take this opportunity that's been given to him, and he preaches the gospel. 
So secondly, we see here the familiarity of the contextual message. Again, we see in verse 22, so Paul. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needs needs anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we read this and we realize, okay, this is a beautiful sermon, but there's more going on here than just the sermon that we read. Paul is using a style here that is unfamiliar to us. He's using a classical rhetorical style. And we say, well, what is that? You don't need to know, and it would take too much time to talk about it. But it's interesting because Paul spoke in the way that philosophers were supposed to speak. His style, the way he introduces it, the way he gets to his main point, the way he challenges them and the way he concludes it are very similar to the way that philosophers had spoken for hundreds of years in Athens. Paul showed up on the scene and he knew what to do. He did what was expected in that setting. He knew the culture enough to know what to say in that setting and how to say it. Paul was attuned also to what they valued. It's interesting here as we read this to an unknown God, and Paul's tapping in on something in their consciousness because skepticism was not prized, especially among the Stoics. In fact, the Stoics and and the goal of Greek philosophy was to know, not to not know. The goal was to know, to have knowledge of, of especially a deity. And so the fact that there was a statue to an unknown God really wasn't something to be commended in their mind, but instead it was something that actually kind of cast shade on them. Like this is something we don't know that we should know. The unknown God was a deficiency in their belief system, not a point of pride. And Paul highlights the one area that that may be a soft spot in their thinking. You don't know everything you need to know about God. Let me tell you what you don't know. Paul starts pointing out areas of commonality. And it's really interesting here. He doesn't quote the poets and say, this is God's truth, but he quotes the poets that they're familiar with to point them to God's truth. He, he quotes uh, a, couple different, a couple different poems here from a couple different poems here. In him we live and move and have our being. And he also quotes, for we are indeed his offspring. And he's quoting Greek poets, Epimedes particularly, who's talking about Zeus. 
And so he's saying, you know something about who we are. He's drawing them back to the created order. He's saying our shared humanity and our shared understanding of the fact that we have to come from something. And he's cracking that door open a little bit to begin to bring in the truth of the gospel. There's ways that as we share the gospel, we can open the door. And there's ways that when we share the gospel, we can close the door. Most of us, when we were led to Christ, especially maybe if you're of my generation, the first verse you ever learned was John 3.16. And it's a beautiful verse. It's a verse that sums up the gospel beautifully. For God so loved the world, I'm probably going to quote it from the King James, because that's how I learned it when I was little, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was the first verse I learned. I memorized it. I have not forgotten it. And it was instrumental in me coming to Christ. Would you, so when you say to someone who was saved in the way that I was saved, how should we share the gospel with Muslims? The temptation would be like, well, I'll just do it the way my mom taught me. You sit down with Muhammad and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And there's a problem with that. Not that the truth of the gospel changes at all, but as soon as I say that he gave his only begotten son, the door is closed because they've built in their mind the idea that, that God had sex with Mary. This is what they believe Christians think. And then the offspring of that was, was Jesus. And of course, that's blasphemy. And Christians everywhere go, yeah, that's blasphemy. We think that's blasphemy too. So that isn't the place we start. We start just like Paul does here. We start in the beginning and we talk about our shared commonality under, as created beings under God and, and what God has done in the intro, introduction of sin and the need for a Savior and our inability to save ourselves and the inability to even be good enough to, to achieve salvation. And then we get to the fact that this is how God accomplished this. Paul does this here in Athens brilliantly. He's pointing them to the God who made the world and everything in it. Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. Paul knows where he is. He understands what is expected of him. He knows what his audience values. And I think this is really important for us as Christians. He knows how to talk about serious matters in serious ways. He, he follows the forms that are expected of people talking about spiritual things. We need to know the people that we're trying to minister to. We need to understand way, the, way they, the way they think. And if we present the gospel in a way that's frivolous or silly, it set, communicates something about the way we value it. To give an example, how many times have I come to church with my Bible and I sit down and I put the Bible right on the ground and it's right handy for me to pick it up when I get up to go preach? Well, in other cultures, holy books would never go anywhere near your feet because the feet are the dirtiest and most disgusting thing. They're walking through streets that are full of, of animal feces, and you would never put something you value anywhere near your feet. In fact, it's an insult to put a shoe or point your feet at somebody. So you take holy things and put them very high. So if someone who comes from a Hindu or Muslim background watches me take the Word of God and put it down by my feet, as a Christian, I know, like, you know, the book points us to the truth. The word of God is truth, but the pages and the paper are, are not necessarily something, you know, unique and holy that give off a, an eminence. We understand all those things, but how I'm communicating, I need to communicate holy and truthful things in holy and truthful ways in ways in which that culture can understand it. And so Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm a Jew. This is the way we do it. He totally adjusts his method and his style 
in order to be able to preach the truth. But he does it in a way that never compromises the gospel message. And this is where that, the tension is, I think, in evangelism and missions, right? There's a temptation to over-contextualize the truth. We, we so accommodate it to the culture that we actually gut the meaning of the text. We gut the meaning and the power of the gospel. Paul doesn't do that. He knows who he's talking to. He knows how to say what he needs to say. He says serious things in serious ways. But he still gets to his point. And we see here in this story that even what he says, even though he is careful in what he's saying, still finds offense with some. Our last point this morning is the faithful nearness of the living God. Paul addresses them where they're at so he can show them where they need to be. We see here that, and reminded of the idea of foreignness, the foreign religion that Paul's accused of preaching talks about an otherness and a distance. The stone idols contrasted with the living God highlight that difference. But we know, and Paul knows, that it was not God who was foreign, but we who are separated from God. The idols in this story are testimonies to our distance from God. It is God that has drawn near. And Paul shows the living Christ to these people. The living Christ has defeated death and stands between us and death. Look at verse 30. It says, And now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So yes, Paul starts where they're familiar with, but Paul makes a beeline for the resurrection. And he says, this is the Christ. This is your only hope that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for your sins and that he has risen again. And this is the assurance that you can have that this God is a true and living God. Look at the risen Christ. And at that point, there's a stumbling block. At that point, there's a, a choice that everyone must wrestle with. And look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I think it's important that we see here that the gospel, no matter how hard we try to contextualize it, no matter the work we put in to making it understandable, still won't be received by everyone. But Paul's message was received by some. And here again we see the strategy so Paul went out from among their midst, and some joined him. So my application for us this morning is this. How do you live on mission in a foreign land? You may say, I'm not in a foreign land. You're in a foreign land, Dunford. You're the one who moved to California. That's true. But that feeling of change, 
I, I, I'm ministering in a congregation. Uh, it was a replant, but we, we, we received a building by merging with a, a small, older congregation. It was planted in the 1950s. A bunch of GIs that, that moved from Texas and Oklahoma and Ohio, and they settled in the 1950s in California. They built their little churches, and you know they sang from the Baptist hymnals, and they did things the same way. And then something dramatic happened. In the 1990s, the tech boom came. And these little quaint little neighborhoods and the little white churches and all the little things that were just pure Americana just on the West Coast with wonderful weather suddenly changed. And their little diners got replaced by noodle shops and, and uh, their churches got taken over by Hindu temples and Buddhist temples. And now it's a city where it's 60% Asian. And if you go to a, the, my, my, I go to my kids' sports meets and, and I'm usually the only white guy there beautiful. But for some people, especially the older ones in my church, it's unsettling. And we see the change in our culture, even here in Pennsylvania, a place that, you know, people live close to their moms and a lot of things stay the same, but you feel the change and you feel the disorientation. And so you have an option. When you feel that distress, what do you do? Do you retreat or do you engage? So how do we live on mission in, even in this country, which has increasingly become a foreign land? We feel more and more like sojourners in this land as Christians. We see here a couple, a couple observations and a couple challenges for you. One, cultivate a tender heart through gospel-focused prayer. Be like Paul. When you feel the distress, let your heart turn toward the gospel. Cultivate a tender heart through gospel-focused prayer. Observe the places where you are. How do we do that? You're probably not going to be like Paul and dig into the philosophers and memorize pagan poetry and things like that. I don't expect that. But there are some things that you can do. You can learn to ask good questions. I remember when my kids were little, I'd send them to school and I'd say, your job today is ask one good question. I thought I was such a good parent. Then Augie told me, oh, Dad, we just usually made up our questions when we got home. We forgot to ask them. I'm a great dad. But you will be better than my son, and you will ask good questions. And as you're working with people who don't know Jesus, what are good questions you can ask them about their life? People love to talk about themselves. You know, what's your faith background? Where's, where's your family from? What do you believe about things that are going on in the news? Be willing to challenge your own assumptions. Being willing to go outside of what you're comfortable with. I encourage you, if you read, to read broadly. We can get stuck in our little cultural cul-de-sacs. It's important for us to understand other ideas, especially ideas that we are fairly certain we do not agree with. So read broadly. Try to develop, I think, a godly sense of empathy where we're trying to understand where people are coming from. Paul was reading very broadly, obviously. And then look to connect on, on common ground. Sometimes we can feel like connecting on common ground is compromise, and I'm not advocating for compromise, but I do think we can look for places like Paul did to say, you believe in a God that created everything that we all come from. I believe in a God. They're not the same God, but I believe in a God that we came from. And begin on that place and go from there. And then begin to go deeper. Going deeper means talking about faith background or family issues and family background. Learn to ask good questions when you don't know, be curious. Be a curious person and then take next steps. So I've, I have a little cheat that I hope that will help you remember. It's 
really corny, but um, think about it like this, OCD. And because I needed an S on the end, I said OCDs. Okay, so you have OCDs. Okay, this is what we have. I know that's not even a thing, but we're going to pretend it is this morning. So it's this. This is your little cheat code when you go to work. So first of all, observe. If you don't know what to say, just be quiet and watch. It's okay to not understand what's going on. Observe. Observe what's going on in our culture. Observe what's going on with your lost neighbors. Observe the things that they value. Observe what they do. Observe and look for good things in their life. Observe. The C stands for connect. Find ways to build connections. Start on the broad level and go in. I had a, a wise pastor talk to, share this. I wish I could remember his little acronyms that he used to use. But I do remember, he would say, when you're meeting with people, like, look for the things you have in common. Like, are there toys out in your neighbor's yard? That means they probably have kids or grandkids. That's a great place to connect. I mean, don't do it in a creepy way. But, you know, I see you have kids. You know, like, how old are your kids? Oh, your grandkids. Oh, wonderful. You know, like, let them start talking about that. If you see that they're still driving their car with Pennsylvania plates, I, I wouldn't be doing that, but I'm sure others might be doing that in California. Uh, no, I, I still have Pennsylvania plates on one of my cars. I shouldn't admit that publicly. But uh, ask them, hey, you know, are you from Pennsylvania? Or in this case, California. Looking for ways to connect. Just interactions. And then take those and go deeper. So, you know, your last name, I'm not familiar with it. Where you, where's your family from? Don't assume that they're from somewhere, but where's your, where's your family background from? Do you have any faith background? Did your family ever go to church? Why did you stop going to church? You can kind of see how the conversation is going into deeper and more serious things. You don't start there. Hey, I'm Scott. Like, do you go to church? Like, no, but begin to probe in those things. Why do you think the way you think? Because people are asking questions. And then begin to take next steps. What would that look like? Maybe join them in a Bible study. Or can I pray for you? Or, or taking knowledge. It was interesting getting to know my neighbors. And we have only been there a short time. And COVID hit and everything was shutting down. And we used to go over and see my neighbor across the street a lot. He was an older guy, Greek Orthodox man. One day I get a, a phone call. And I didn't recognize the number. It was from San Diego. And it's my neighbor's in-laws. And they called and said, I have really bad news. My father just died. Would you go over and pray with my mom? At that point, it was, we were devastated. We were very sad. We knew he was sick and he was older, but also super encouraged that somehow our love for Christ was communicated all the way to their family in San Diego that when the time came to minister grace in this family's life, we were the phone call they made. I don't say this at any kind of brag other than to say this could be you too. We have the ability, and God's given us the tools to do this. The strategy is your, so what? What do you do next? And so, trust the living God, brothers and sisters. This is my plea to you. Trust the living God, who can turn idolatrous hearts of foreign stone into the tender hearts of beloved children. This is the ministry that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it transformed our lives, and we are so grateful. So use us, Lord, in the places you put us. Use us, Lord, whether that's in Fremont, California, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Lord, to declare your glory and see people come to know the true and living God. In Jesus' name, amen.